Dateline, a campus near you. Read all about it. Press releases, articles, blogs, news feeds, rankings, books, tweets, posts, podcasts. The head spins and swims in admissions, updates, news, spin, lists, commentary, gossip. So much buzz, too much info, so many opinions. I'm here to help. When the beat is loud, I'll turn down the volume. I'm Lee Coffin, Dartmouth's Dean of Admissions. Welcome to the Admission Beat, the pod for news, conversation, and advice on all things college admissions. I love words. I read them, write them, speak them, play with them. I love a good pun. I'm intrigued by the origin of a word, the way words arrange themselves into ideas, sentences, stories, songs, slogans, podcasts. I keep a note on my phone uh, that keeps track of new words I discover. The note is called wordplay and quinquennial is its most recent edition. If you're curious, it means every five years, kind of like a school reunion. So I'm a vocabulary collector, a wordsmith, a word nerd. I often think I should have studied linguistics and I might have if that had been a major at my college, but I'm not sure it was even a class I could have taken. And then I wonder if my college era self would have allowed my curiosity to wander towards linguistics, even if I could have. I'd never heard of it back then. And what would I have done with that kind of degree? My dad was puzzled enough when I declared my major in history. What the hell will you do with a degree in that? He grumbled. And then he added, and why am I paying for it? And I reminded him, well, I was on financial aid, so he wasn't paying that much for it, but I digress. Um, I told him I studied it because I loved it. And I think my career has turned out pretty well and my life has been informed by my journey through that humanities discipline at Trinity in the 1980s. But my dad's reaction is not uncommon. Over the years, I've heard many students wrestle with this same question to themselves and also as they negotiate college admissions with their parents. I was in London a few years ago and a student came up to me and asked me about our Italian program and said, I really love the idea of studying Italian, at which point his mom swatted them in the shoulder and said, you're such a romantic, you're gonna study physics and you'll like it. And then she walked away. And I said to him, study Italian, follow your heart. A little while later, I was in another presentation and I told the story I just shared about my dad's interaction with my choice of major. And a young man came up to me afterwards and he said, thank you for saying that because I've been struggling to figure out how to tell my parents that I want to study art history. And as a first gen family, they don't understand why that's practical. So this week, my guests and I will ponder this nagging question. What is the enduring value of the liberal arts and specifically the value of the humanities as a course of study in the 2020s? And we'll answer a question that dances around this topic. What are you gonna do with that? And the quick answer, almost anything you want. So this week we welcome Charlotte Albright as always, who in her own right is a humanities person with a PhD in literature. So hello, Charlotte. Hello. Our guests today are Barbara Will, the Newberry Professor of English at Dartmouth College, where she is a specialist in 20th century literature, culture, and history, with a comparative emphasis on Anglo-American and French modernism. And Scott Muir, who's Dartmouth class of 2008, and he is the project director 
for studying the humanities at the National Humanities Alliance in Washington, D.C. So let me start with a really foundational first question for, for Barbara and Scott. Um, what are the humanities? The humanities are, um, you know, basically the study of culture. So the study of art, literature, music, philosophy, religion, media, film, foreign languages, history, um, all of the all of the good topics that um, ask ask questions about our culture, about our world, about our past, and about our future. It, it's about it's about people in their cultures who are producing artifacts. So it's also people who um, who made um, pots in ancient Rome or um, a, a filmmaker, a present day filmmaker in China. It's people who are making things that they've left to future generations to think about, to understand, to analyze, and to appreciate. No, and that's really helpful. And I started with that question to both of you because, you know, as an admission officer, I'm very mindful of the need to translate academia to high school ears. You know, so, you know, a student moves through ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, and the word humanities may never have landed in a course description they take. They take English, and they take social studies, and they take languages, but perhaps they've never heard someone call those the humanities. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge of this topic we're, we're engaged in too, is it's, you know, when you say science, people get it. When you say um, engineering, people understand that humanities has a less direct um, journey through your ears to your understanding. Does that sound right, Scott? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'll just add, uh, you know, in this work that at the National Humanities Alliance, I've come to also know the humanities as a, as a network of institutions, uh, such as libraries, museums, historical societies, archives, uh, all kinds of cultural institutions, um, and also to think about it in terms of activities. So all of those disciplines that Barbara just listed, you know, you're, you're doing these types of activities, but there are also things that, you know, you as a high school student are familiar with, you know, when you start to analyze uh, uh, a cultural artifact, even if it's a TV show, in a, in a critical and thoughtful way, uh, you're starting to kind of do the humanities. Listening to podcasts, learning about music, film, visual arts, foodways, all of these things can, can be uh, ways of doing the humanities as well. And Scott, just as we start, like what is the National Humanities Alliance? So the National Humanities Alliance is an advocacy organization, and uh, we were founded to advocate for federal funding for the humanities, so the National Endowment for Humanities, uh, which, and there's also a National Endowment for the Arts, uh, exists to support humanities work across the country and programming. Uh, so we advocate for that along with the National Archives and a lot of other things uh, in the federal government. I don't work at all on that side of the house. I work purely in higher ed and advocating for humanities education, primarily at the undergraduate level uh, and supporting faculty and administrators in, in doing so. Okay, so that's very helpful. So for the three of you, so Charlotte, Scott, and Barbara, you're all humanists. You've all studied the humanities. Some of you teach it. Um, let's go back to high school. And I'd like each of you to share kind of with our listeners, you know, were you focused on the humanities as part of your college search 
in your respective high school moments or did this come to you a bit more serendipitously when you were in college? I'll start with Barbara. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm actually the child of two professors of the humanities. So it wasn't it wasn't a huge stretch for me. My um, my father, uh, who's still alive, is a classics professor uh, and a literature professor. And my mother also was a classics professor. So I grew up in a very uh, college type environment. A lot of students were coming through the house all the time. My parents were um, very interested in teaching and there were books everywhere. So it was not really uh, hard for me to imagine going to college and studying the humanities um, because I love to read. I mean, I have to say when you were introducing this podcast, Lee, I, I recognized myself immediately in what you said. I just love language. I love words. I like the origins of words. I like doing Wordle. <laughs> I like crossword puzzles. Um, I could spend a lot of time dissecting language, and, and I really just love doing that. So reading has always been a huge part of my life. Um, the other piece of my life that's important is music. So I've, I was trained as a classical violinist. I almost went to conservatory um, and then decided, you know, I want a liberal arts education. I want to be able to study things outside of music and outside of literature. Um, I wanted to study science and, and even thought I might want to be a doctor eventually. And so, I, yeah, I had a strong humanities kind of background from my family and my innate interests, but I also was curious about other things too. So I didn't necessarily know I wanted to major in the humanities. Um, once I got to college and started taking um, English classes and at, at a higher level, you know, with really great professors, I, I sort of realized like, this is what I really love. So, um, you know. Yeah. And were you an English major? I was an English major. Okay. Uh, Charlotte? Well, Barbara, I was an English major too, Bennington <laughs> College class of 1972. And I also was um, a kid who was always being told to turn out the light and go to bed and stop reading. And then I would get the flashlight and go under the covers. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I, I have to say, all of my best teachers happened to be English teachers. I mean, I was diagramming sentences, and I still teach that to some of my students. Uh, and then uh, I went to graduate school because I hadn't really read enough, I felt, in undergraduate school because I had spent a little time walking around on the stage and taking parts and not going to every single class every single day. But anyway, I ended up getting a PhD in literature. And while I was doing that, I needed to make some money. So I started freelance writing for the Boston Phoenix and then ended up in public radio. It was seamless. It was a seamless transition because I always think of journalism as a teaching profession. It's just that I don't have to grade all of the people that are listening to me, which is, you know, a boon from my point of view. But I've always gone back and forth uh, between teaching and broadcasting. And now I'm podcasting, which feels like a blend. So that's that's my story. But Honestly, um, as a journalist, I am now watching some of these news stories that I'm sure Scott will talk more about later about the humanities themselves, and it's dizzying. So let me just say journalism about academia is something that needs to be decoded. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we'll mm -hmm. do that, right, Scott? Yeah. Sure. So Scott, where, where did you start? Well, I'd always loved history, especially as I loved historical fiction. As, you know, when I first started reading, I was reading historical novels about the American Revolution and things as like an eight-year-old and loved that. And uh, 
uh, I had these amazing history teachers in high school. So that just kind of reinforced that. Um, so I, I arrived on campus uh, knowing that I loved history and that was kind of in my back pocket. But I also really wanted to explore everything that was available to me. And I spent my first, I said, you know, I know I love history. Let's take two years to sort of explore all the things that I don't know anything about. Uh, I wanted to really learn what was the best fit for me in an informed way by really kind of taking the tour um, and what's going to motivate me and propel me forward. And, and that's what I did. I, uh, I, I took, signed up for courses in philosophy, anthropology, astronomy, music, environmental science, economics, Spanish, et cetera. I remember getting that print copy of the courses that were going to be offered next term. And it was like, a, I was a kid in a candy store. You know, I just loved choosing based on what the most compelling course was, uh, regardless of what discipline it was in. And it was actually social psychology that grabbed me first. Um, so I have a, a strong social science uh, orientation as well. Um, and then religious studies really grabbed me. And uh, I spent my basically my entire senior year studying, taking religious studies courses, picked up a very late minor, uh, and eventually a PhD. Uh, so it just felt like after all the things I had studied, it really kind of put a lot of the things I was interested in, a lot of the disciplines that I was interested in, in conversation with one another. And, uh, and that really sealed the deal for me. And what I love about the three of your stories is the, that you followed your intellectual curiosity, you know, the, your love of books and reading and learning and asking questions kind of guided you into parts of the curriculum that you might not have known a lot about. And I think, you know, when, if you jump ahead of the admission story into first year advising, you know, when I've done that over the years, I, I often say to students, be open to exploring. Don't just lock yourself into some narrow understanding of, well, I'm good at this, so I'm going to study that because you don't know. I mean, like my linguistics example in the intro, um, you might not have ever heard of the discipline because that wasn't a high school word, but the, the content of that is exactly what you'd like to study. And um, so why, so part of what we're talking about is you know, the humanities as this really rich part of the curriculum. And Barbara, I'm reminded of a comment you made one year at an open house where you talked about the geography of Dartmouth College. And you said, you know, the, depart the academic departments that circle the green are the arts and humanities and languages. And you said, you know, these classic components of the curriculum sit at the heart of our geography. And that really stuck with me as kind of a, a metaphor for the way the curriculum plays out around the campus. And can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think where, where I would go with that is to, you know, first disentangle the humanities and the liberal arts, because I think a lot of people think when they hear the word the liberal arts, they think we're talking about the humanities or the, the fields of study in the humanities. But actually, the liberal arts is a is an entire uh, broad range of, of subjects offered at an undergraduate college like Dartmouth. Um, and and in the past, you know, most students would have focused their liberal arts study on the humanities. Um, that's changed somewhat now, where students are are not necessarily focused as much on the humanities, and maybe are more interested in uh, majoring in fields like STEM or um, you know, economics, um, government, that kind of thing. And that's all fine. It's, it's just the history of a school like Dartmouth is very much embedded 
in um, the heart of, of, of the campus around the humanities. And I think it still is because what, what the humanities teach you is a way of looking at the world, questioning the world, criticizing the world and appreciating the world. And those skills are all things that students take into their other classes, when they, whether they're studying engineering or earth sciences. But those are like these fundamental intellectual skills that the humanities really, really focuses on in our small classes and you know, very, very closely, um, close work with professors, which is the feature of humanities classes. And those skills are things that um, transfer into all parts of the rest of the campus. Um, so, the, so the heart of the heart of the campus, I think, really is the humanities. And then as, as people develop other interests, they take those skills that they've learned in humanities classes into other parts of the campus. Well, Barbara, you talked about how there's a shift from humanities into STEM courses occasionally, and that gets a lot of headlines when that happens. So Heckinger Report, end of November, reports that the number of college graduates in the humanities drops for the eighth consecutive year, subtitle, a puzzling decline of more than 30% in English and history majors. But on the other hand, there's a counter story that came out within a week of that one in Forbes magazine. And Forbes is reporting just the opposite, that during COVID, and nobody knows quite how to explain this, so maybe you could, but during COVID, a time of economic upheaval, you might expect that there would be an even bigger decline in humanities degrees and an increase in STEM, but the opposite happened. Four in 10 of the class of 21 said the pandemic influenced their choice of a college major, and a lot of them chose humanities. So Scott, as I said, decode, please. <laughs> yeah, and you see this all the time in the editorial page uh, as well uh, in terms of counter narratives. Um, and you know that, that data that Forbes is reporting on is more recent, but it's also more contained. I think they're reporting on UVM, uh, University of Vermont, College of Arts and Sciences data uh, because you know, to get data that quickly, it, it kind of has to be on a smaller scale. Uh, whereas the... Uh, the Hetchinger report is is referring back to pre-pandemic data because that's what we actually have a national sense of at this point. We don't have a national sense of the trends uh, of the last year or two. So um, that's my understanding of why you have two, you know, people citing two different stories. And I think the the impact of the pandemic, you know, time will tell. Uh, but I think there's a lot of great reasons to to think that you know everything that we've gone through with the pandemic with the national reckoning with racial injustice, with you know everything we're dealing with, uh, with our democracy, uh, that all of these things that we've experienced in the past year, climate change, et cetera, that there's a lot of reasons to think that, that these are pointing students towards wanting to study the humanities and, and delve into the questions that we're all asking uh, ourselves right now. But honestly, Scott, when I see that pendulum swinging from one year to the next, it makes me pose a question to Lee you know, to any admissions dean, um, isn't there then a case to be made for choosing a school in which you as the pendulum can swing yourself, right? You know, you could decide on English and later, you know, end up in engineering. And those are not mutually exclusive intellectual exercises anymore. There's so much interdisciplinary teaching. There's so much double and triple majors. So isn't that an argument, Lee, for a school that offers 
a place for this pendulum to swing as much as it wants. Yes, uh, you know, I've been a student of the liberal arts, a, a resident of the liberal arts since 1981, and I've never left. And I 100% uh, see this curriculum as the best training for a life of inquiry and engagement and being ready to interpret what comes next by having understood where we've been. And, um, you know, and I, I would describe myself as a humanities positive dean. And, you know, Barbara, as the former um, dean of the arts and humanities at Dartmouth, I mean, we were administrative pals in championing the promotion of this part of the curriculum to prospective students and parents. And so having said that, I mean, one of the, I want to bring some data into this. So I'll call it quantitative humanities for just a second. Um, so I was looking at our applicant pool, you know, what's the representation of the humanities or interest in the humanities in our applicant pool? So to Scott and Barbara, love your, your thoughts on this. So I, I did a query of any applicant who listed one of our humanities disciplines as a potential major. So we asked them, what's your primary, what's your secondary, what's your tertiary? So you have three choices. 9% of the applicants listed one of the humanities as an interest. And to scale that, that adds up to about 2,500 students in a pool of 28,000. Um, in contrast, biology, computer science, engineering, and economics, each on their own have more intended majors than the humanities combined. And so I think it speaks to this conundrum that Charlotte was poking at, which is there, there's a lot of interest in STEM broadly um, in fields that are perceived as being pragmatic. I think that's where my dad would have landed um, when he was counseling me towards a major. So it's a conundrum because while we are championing them and we are celebrating them in the curriculum and in the admission process, the volume to date flows the other way. And I think that's part of, part of the challenge is how do we become kind of the evangelists for the humanities, if you will. I mean, that would be religion <laughs> uh, example there, but like, how do we tell this story in a way that gets prospective students and their parents to sit up and say, yeah, that's me. Well, can I jump in? Because I think yeah. I mean, Scott, Scott is the person who really can can speak to this because, I mean, he just, you know, produces these amazing um, rationales for why um, why one should study the humanities. But I do want to say, Lee, um, that I think that number of nine percent interest has actually is actually pretty stable. I mean, it yeah. maybe has gone up and down, but it's pretty stable in the last, let's say, maybe 10, 15 years. Um, when I first came to Dartmouth, which was in 1994, there were many, many students who wanted to ma major in the humanities. Um, that fell off after the financial crisis of 2008. And um, since then, there's been this um, marked, you know, decline, but it's, it's now sort of, I would say, um, you know, stabilized at that, at that level of incoming interest, which is, yeah, very low, but it also doesn't say what happens once a student arrives on campus and starts taking some of these great, you know, philosophy courses or classics courses or art history courses and thinks like, this is what I want to do with, you know, with my time. So I, again, I'm not, I'm not too worried about that number because I've been riding this, this wave for 10 to 15 years. 
Um, but but it's still it still raises a lot of questions about what's happening largely in society that might be causing those numbers to be so low. Well, and what my hypothesis is, I've started to play with the numbers last year, this year. Um, you know, the pools are growing um, across our peer group and at Dartmouth. And what's interesting to me is much of the growth comes in communities that have low uh, understanding of the humanity. So, you know, we've talked on this podcast about globalism and, and, and internationalism. Um, so of these humanities, students with the humanities interest, only 23% of them are international citizens. You know, when I look at the first gen pool, it's only 17% of this group are the first in their families to go to college. Uh, and as you map it against, there's a huge female majority in this pool too. And so, you know, I think about the demographics and I start to overlap these two things. And I, I guess the question to the, to the two of you is, how do you get ahead of the demographic curve? So if the international pool continues to grow and there's lower recognition of these disciplines as opportunities in college, like for our international listeners, like, you know, how do we have a conversation with you about, you know, this piece of the curriculum and why it's applicable to your life? Well, yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are certain cultures that have always had a sort of a bias towards engineering and medicine and things like that as, you know, sort of seen as the path to professional stability um, and, and sort of maybe some of the more venerated professions in those cultures. Um, you know, that 9% figure, I would, I would make a very, I'd be very confident in a wager that more than 9% of those applicants have enjoyed their experiences with the humanities before college and actually do have a genuine interest in them. And they're, they're counting them out as majors for other reasons. Not that they're, it's not that they're not interested in them. It's that they think that they don't have permission to study them as majors. And I would also wager that there's going to be people who are not in that 9% who find their way to the humanities once they get to campus and, and see what's actually going on at the college level. Well, I think that's part of the misleading narrative in the admissions beat. You know, you've got Forbes and Heckinger's writing about declines when in fact the interest is still there. There are people who are taking these classes and loving them and thriving in them, but maybe choosing a major outside of the humanities doesn't mean they're dismissing the humanities as an essential part of their curriculum. And so I think it's, how do you measure success? Is it the number of majors? Or the number of people taking courses in these disciplines that enrich the other the other parts of the curriculum, and you're all nodding as I say that. Yeah, so it, it's undeniable that there has been a decline in humanities majors and enrollments since 2008, uh, the Great Recession being the real kind of pivotal turning point. But that was not a response to poor outcomes of humanities majors on the job market, nor is it an accurate representation of kind of where our economy is headed. So. Now, some people may feel that you know, they, with the ascendance of technology, that things have changed in such a way that a humanities background is no longer the strong foundation for success that it has always been. Uh, maybe they think everyone should be a computer science major now, so they learn how to code or something like that. Uh, but if you read the forecasts of labor market experts, that is not at all what they say. They say human skills like communication and critical thinking will be more important as more and more technical tasks are automated. They note that business leaders more than ever before need to be able to navigate sensitive social and cultural issues deftly. They predict that coding will continue to be valuable for the kinds of jobs it is already important for, but that most workers will rely more heavily 
on their interpersonal and uniquely human skills. The other thing they note, which I think is really important, is just how diversified and niche the workforce is now. Mm -hmm. Doctor, lawyer, businessman may be the familiar types, but the reality is that you can make money doing just about anything now. Now, these are not humanities people or educators pointing these things out. This is what Deloitte is saying. This is what World Economic Forum has been saying about the future of work. Uh, and I think the events of the last couple of years really bear all this out. Well, it gets to a podcast that Scott's about to launch. So on March 10th, his podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That?, launches and uh you wrote to me it um it will illustrate the notoriously fuzzy connection between undergraduate education in the humanities and the wide range of exciting careers through the personal stories of people who've explored them to just to charlotte's point you can major in any of these disciplines and interpret them into these broad opportunities but as, tell us about your podcast as a way of segueing into this I think conundrum that nags at people like my dad, which is this belief that you study something and then that's who you are when you're done, as opposed to the discipline as a foundation that sets you up for a wide range of careers. So my new podcasting colleague, tell us about it. Sure. Uh, so it's called, what are you going to do with that? Which is a familiar question for college students and humanities majors in particular. Uh, and it basically challenges all the biases that are often implied in that question through stories of everyday folks who study the humanities on their way to fulfilling careers. And these stories are not unique. The data does not support the notion that humanity majors struggle to make ends meet. It shows them employed, making competitive salaries, satisfied with their careers. Um, so these trends of decline aren't responding to things happening on the job market where humanities majors are struggling and they're not responding to trends where human, the, the value of humanities skills and the job market are diminishing. But what we found is that uh, showing people the data doesn't necessarily replace that false narrative with a more accurate understanding of how a humanities background provides a strong foundation for your career. The stories really help to illustrate that more clearly. Uh, so part of how they do that is that you get to hear folks uh, who have applied these different humanities majors in a variety of career fields but there's then the more particular stories about marrying humanities knowledge and skills with technological and scientific capacities, about humanities offering the perfect on-ramp to a legal career, about applying the passion for humanities through a career in museums, uh, about the ability to navigate challenging issues in business and find creative solutions to problems. Uh, so there's a consistent message that if you trust yourself and focus your efforts where you feel yourself growing and getting excited to do more, you're putting yourself in a great position for success wherever your path leads from there. And I think that's the key thing. I think part of the storytelling in the admissions space, particularly for families like mine, for whom college is a new adventure, it, it's debunking this idea that the career and the major are inextricably connected. So can you, Scott, can you give us a preview of maybe one of the stories you told, like someone who studied a humanities discipline and landed in a really unexpected role afterwards? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, there was a little bit of a pattern um, in that, you know, we had multiple, there's multiple stories of folks who thought they were going to be doctors and then mm -hmm. ended up taking a different path. And there's multiple who thought they were going to be lawyers uh, that ended up taking a different path and one who, who did become a lawyer. And that was kind of the plan all along. Um, so in terms of those, uh, who, who took this kind of unexpected journey, I mean, one, 
was a communication specialist first in government, then in the private sector, now in nonprofits, and is now a candidate for the uh, chief executive position at her nonprofit foundation, where she's been working for a number of years. Um, you know, a, another one uh, who thought she was going to be a lawyer ended up pursuing her passion for fine food, and uh, you know, actually built a really wonderful career on the foundation of waiting tables at really nice restaurants uh, right out of college and is now working for a seed company uh, that provides heirloom seeds through seed breeding. It's a partnership between chefs and scientists and humanities folks. And it's, it's wild. And there's, there's all kinds of jobs like that, that nobody knows about and you can't know about until you go on a journey that brings you to somewhere like that. Yeah. Well, and then can I just add, I mean, at Dartmouth, there's some really famous stories. Um, Timothy Geithner, who was um, the Treasury Secretary under under Obama, was an East Asian studies major. Mm -hmm. He was and actually he was a a classmate, I believe, of Connie Britton's, who was also a, a Dartmouth alum, also an East Asian studies major. Who ended up becoming an actress? Mm-hmm. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of stories at at all of these colleges we're talking about of people who have taken taken humanities paths in in undergraduate years and then gone off and done really amazing things that are very different from humanities majors. Well, as my fellow English major, Barbara, you you know the other thing that occurs to me is that when we teach the novel, and everybody reads novels. I don't care whether you're going to major in engineering or not. At some point, you're going to read a novel in college. A lot of these novels, especially 19th century novels, my favorite period, are about up and comers. You know, they really are. They are, um, they kind of map out uh, a Becky Thatcher or some Dickens character like Great Expectations, um, uh, making their way because of their own wit and grit and so when I teach those novels, I try to get students to identify with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, you know, I don't know, Lee, if you want to move into the part of the discussion about um, the skills that you learn. Go for it. Through studying the humanities. But I think, for example, the skills that you learn from studying a novel are so interesting to me. Like, what is it that you really are learning when you read, study, discuss, and write about a novel in an undergraduate classroom. It's very hard to really put your finger on what you're learning, but somehow what you're learning is allowing you to develop yourself in these really interesting ways that are then going to have sort of transferable effects onto your future. So for example, if you're learning learning how to analyze a character, you're learning a ton about human psychology. And you're learning a lot about motivation and about counter motivations. Um, these are all skills that you're actually learning. And these are things that you can actually apply to jobs that you get after college. And I think, Scott, you've done an incredible job sort of mapping the way in which these sort of intangible things that happen in a humanities classroom are actually producing these skills in young people that are gonna have enormous effects on their future careers. Storytelling, it's narrative. It's, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to the two of you just um, share those thoughts, you know, what's the root of humanities? What's the, you know, like diagram the words human. And, um, you know, I, I think that's not accidental that, you know, these disciplines 
connect to each of us as a person. But there is um, a counter narrative, isn't there? Uh, and that is a pet peeve of mine. Those uh, articles that come out, Scott, and you sent me one, I think it was a Washington Post one, that equates, it, it, it matches up how much it costs to get a degree, let's say from Oberlin, this was one of them in the Washington Post, philosophy degree from Oberlin costs 142 grand. And two years later, graduates are making from that program $18,000 drives me nuts. For one thing, my daughter went to Oberlin. She's doing very well with her art degree. Um, but the idea that you could create a narrative around those numbers seems odd to me because number one, a lot of people don't pay that sticker price <laughs> for the college degree. And um, I'm not sure how to read those numbers. That Are they only looking at people who are making a living as a philosopher? Are those the two people that are making $18,000? I mean, what do those numbers mean? And why this should we even the, look at them? This is the issue, Charlotte, that I live as an admission officer, where there's a ROI component to this admission conversation. What's ROI mean? Return, Return on investment. investment. Okay. But it's very present today. And I think it's a function of what we all cost now. And so, you know, adding up one year times four and saying, is this degree worth it? Is this very pragmatic consumer consumerist perspective, it's not illegitimate, but it, it's, it misses the point sometimes. So what those numbers show you, the way to interpret those numbers is like, okay, if I know that I immediately need to be making a very lucrative salary immediately, right out of college, um, then these are the majors that can do that for me. And the problem with that Washington Post piece and some of the reportage on this is that like, People have then taken those numbers and tried to extrapolate out from two years and project that out into someone's entire career and measure long-term ROI from this major, which just doesn't work. I mean, the numbers yeah. just don't work. It's a lot of projection. The college scorecard is not built to determine whether uh, a program is functioning well, whether it's giving their students valuable skills, you know, the long-term value of that degree, any of those things. It's only built to measure and identify the programs that immediately lead to lucrative employment. And so, you know, I understand that certain students are going to be coming from a place where that feels really important to them, but I think it's being uh, overblown to point it in a negative direction to say, well, these, these programs have poor ROI when the numbers actually don't really support that conclusion. There was a New York Times article, I want to say two years ago, I wrote about it, I can find the data, um, which suggests that by the age of 40, people who majored in the humanities are making as much as, if not more than people who had more quote unquote professional majors. So it's really going back to your point, Scott, that mm -hmm. we may not be measuring, if we really wanna think about long-term financial success, whatever that means, um, and, and we're not even talking about like life satisfaction and all the other things that you get from a humanities major. Sure. We're simply talking about like, how much money are you making at the age of, 40, it looks like the humanities folks are not really doing that poorly. <laughs> I come right back to my own kitchen as a, as a teenager where my dad was saying like, you know, you got to get a good job and you're going to college and this, this is going to lead you to something. And it of course did. So for those of you listening, and by those of you, I'm talking to high school seniors and juniors and maybe sophomores who are looking forward and getting that question posed to you, like, so what will you major in? What do you want to study? My best advice as an admission officer um, and as a humanities student myself is 
follow your passion, um, be true to that intellectual compass that makes you giddy to go to class, that makes you excited to put your flashlight or probably your, your cell phone under the sheets to read the book after you're supposed to be asleep and to honor that part of your personhood that makes you excited to explore and to learn about people and to find yourself in words like I do and in music and in the arts and in museums and in libraries and in conversation. And know that when you come to college, you will find kindred spirits as you take up that course of study and then run from there uh, when you get to college. So Barbara, Scott, Charlotte, thanks so much for um, joining, joining us on the Admission Beat this week. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was fun. As always, if you have questions, please send them to us at admissionsbeat at dartmouth.edu. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Admission Beat wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like the idea of what are you going to do with that, Scott Muir's new podcast, please find it on your pod platforms and subscribe to Scott so that as he starts evangelizing about the humanities and life with them, you've got him in your earbuds too. For now, this is Lee Coffin from Dartmouth College. We'll see you next week. Thank you.